Amen and amen. If you would, in your Bibles, please turn to 1 Kings chapter 18, and I'm not going to preach the whole chapter um, this evening. We're going to look at just the first 16 verses, God willing. This chapter is too long, too good, and there's too much content to deal with in one sermon. This is a, a chapter, I think, worth savoring, not to wolf down in one sitting. So, we'll work our way through it with some um, appropriate pace. Let's read together uh, the first uh, 19 verses, actually, to the praise of God. And before we do, let's pray together. Father in heaven, You are the great and eternal God. You speak, it is done. You command, and it holds fast. The entirety of Your Word is true. It's a lamp to our feet, a light to our path. And we pray this evening, our God, that You would bless us as we consider together uh, the truth contained in this particular portion at this particular time, that You would make the book live, O God. It is not dead, of course, O God. It's our hearts that are too often dead when they come to Scripture. We need the help of Your Holy Spirit to take Your sword of the Spirit, that living and active Word that's sharper than any two-edged sword, to pierce to the division of our heart and our soul and to the joints and marrow of our being, and let us know that there's a living God in this place who searches the hearts of men and reveals the secrets therein to us, that each of us might leave this place tonight saying, surely God is in this place. We offer these prayers, O God, that you would hallow your name and extend your kingdom, especially in our hearts, and then through our witness before a watching world. We offer these prayers in Jesus' name. Amen. This is the Word of God. Please take heed how you all hear. After many days, the word of the Lord came to Elijah in the third year, saying, Go show yourself to Ahab, and I will send rain upon the earth. So Elijah went to show himself to Ahab. Now the famine was severe in Samaria, and Ahab called Obadiah, who was over the household. Now Obadiah feared the Lord greatly, and when Jezebel cut off the prophet of the Lord, Obadiah took a hundred prophets and hid them by fifties in a cave and fed them with bread and water. And Ahab said to Obadiah, Go through the land to all the springs of water and to all the valleys. Perhaps we may find grass and save the horses and mules alive and not lose some of the animals. So they divided the land between them to pass through it. Ahab went in one direction by himself, and Obadiah went in another direction by himself. And as Obadiah was on the way, behold, Elijah met him. And Obadiah recognized him and fell on his face and said, Is it you, my lord, Elijah? And he answered, It is I. Go tell your lord, behold, Elijah is here. And he said, Why have I sinned that you would give your servant into the hand of Ahab to kill me? As the Lord your God lives, there is no nation or kingdom where my lord is not sent to seek you. And when they would say he is not here, he would take an oath of the kingdom or nation that they had not found you. And now you say, Go, tell your Lord, behold, Elijah is here. And as soon as I have gone from you, the Spirit of the Lord will carry you, I know not where. And so when I come and tell Ahab, and he cannot find you, he will kill me, although I am your servant and have feared the Lord from my youth. Hath it not been told, my Lord, that I did what Jezebel 
Whatever I did when Jezebel killed the prophets of the Lord, how I hid a hundred men of the Lord's prophets by fifties in a cave and fed them with bread and water. And now you say, go tell your Lord, behold, Elijah's here, and he will kill me. And Elijah said, as the Lord of hosts lives before him I stand, I will surely show myself to him today. So Obadiah went to Ahab and told him, and Ahab went to meet Elijah. When Ahab saw Elijah, Ahab said to him, Is it you, you troubler of Israel? And he answered, I have not troubled Israel, but you have, and your father's house, because you've abandoned the commandments of the Lord and followed the Baals. Now therefore, send and gather all Israel to me at Mount Carmel and the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table. Amen. The grass withers. And the flower falls off, but the Word of God endures forever. Well, the name of the game in this, this first portion of the chapter um, is contrasts. Uh, we see contrasts abound everywhere. There's a contrast between Yahweh and Baal. There's a contrast between Obadiah and Ahab. There's a contrast between Obadiah and Elijah. And there's a contrast between Elijah and Ahab. Let's work through these contrasts together this evening. The first thing I want you to see in our passage tonight is how different Yahweh is from Baal. The great question that kind of weaves its way through this whole chapter is, who is the real God? Is it Yahweh or is it Baal? And you'll see that if you were to read on in the chapter in verse 21, Elijah comes near all the people and says, how long will you go limping between two opinions? If Yahweh is God, follow Him, but if Baal is God, then follow Him. And the people did not answer him a word. We're down in verse 24. And you call upon the name of your God, and I will call upon the name of the Lord. And the God who answers by fire, he is God. And all the people answered, it's well spoken. And then down in verse 26. And they took the bull that was given them, and they prepared it and called upon the name of Baal from morning until noon, saying, O Baal, answer us. But there was no voice, and no one answered. And they limped around the altar that they had made. Then in verse 37, Elijah steps forward and says, Answer me, O Lord. Answer me that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God, and that you have turned their hearts back. And then verse 39, when all the people saw it, the fire falling, they fell on their faces and said, The Lord, He is God. The Lord, Yahweh, He is God. And you see even an allusion to the fact that Yahweh is the real God in the opening verse of the chapter. And after many days, the word of Yahweh came to Elijah in the third year, saying, Go, show yourself to Ahab, and I will send rain upon the earth. Now, that is intended to be a poke right in Baal's eye. You remember, Baal was the storm god. He was the god of rain. He is the one who is supposed to be able to turn rain on at a whim. And in this verse, Yahweh says, no, that is not true. I am the one who turns rain on and who turns rain off at my word, at my word. And as we read this chapter, we realize that God is not just the God of thunder. He's not just the God of the storm. God is the storm. And He's coming uh, in thunder and lightning to show who the real God is. And He's going to do that um, on Mount Carmel, we see that next week, that Mount Carmel was the epicenter of Baal's power. It was his holy of holies. 
It was his mountain of Sinai and Zion were the mountains of Yahweh. Carmel was the mountain of Baal. It was where his presence was most powerfully felt and his most power evidently known. And so if Elijah had done this contest in Jerusalem, um, the prophets of Baal would have said, well, of course, Elijah won the battle on Jerusalem. That's his land. That's his, that's his place. If it had been on Mount Carmel, it would be a different story. And so Elijah chooses Baal's home turf to show who the real God really is. Who is the real God? And what we see in this chapter is, and we need to realize this, that idols never deliver on their promises. In fact, it's worse than that. Idols promise life, but they end up giving you death. Remember once I was asked to charge a well-known young PCA minister. He'd been, he had been found drunk in charge of a vehicle driving and was um, arrested and was being censored by presbytery, and they asked me to charge him. And I remember saying to him uh, something along the lines of, alcohol promises to give everything to you, but it actually will take everything from you. Only Christ will give himself for you and give you uh, entrance into the kingdom of God uh, as you repent. And that's important to realize, isn't it? Because as Calvin so aptly says, our hearts are factories of idols. We're constantly generating things, created things to control us and consume us the way only God should. We can sometimes think that idolatry is a you know, passe thing. That's a thing that you know, primitive people do in other parts of the world where they, they worship um, idols of wood and stone and so forth and so on. But we need to realize that we constantly manufacture created things to control us the way only God should. And often those, those things are good things, but they're good things that we want too much right? Um, so, think about um, uh, how we might idolize, for example, control. Parents want their children um, to do well, to be, do well spiritually, to do well educationally in school. But if, if that becomes an idol and we, we try to lock them down and control them, which of course is an appropriate thing to do in the first you know, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten years of age. But as they get older, God has ordained that we control them tightly when they're young. And as they get older and we've trained them, we gradually loose the control and let them be men and women in their own right. And so often we reverse that process. We try to be very lax when they're young, when their sin looks cute. And then as they get older, we panic and try to kind of control them and hem them in with predictable, um, predictable results. And if you try to control your children and crush them as they get older, one of two things will happen. Either you will crush your children into submission, and they'll be left hollow husks of what they might have been. They'll lack maturity. They'll lack initiative. They'll lack courage. They'll lack adventure. They'll lack the capacity to reach out beyond their peer group and welcome strangers, and they'll just be hollow husks who, who look about in a scared and frightened way. Or um, they will buck against your efforts to control them, and they'll become rebellious and defiant. And the moment um, they're out of the home, 
um, they will give vent to their full reaction. But we control them. We mean well. But it's like Darth Vader in Star Wars, whenever Princess Leia says, the harder you squeeze, the more the sand slips between your fingers, right? And it takes great wisdom. But if we... um, if we idolize their spiritual welfare, if we idolize their educational welfare, um, uh, it'll start to control us the way only God should, and we'll become anxious and angry and vindictive, and, and our home will be out of balance, and it will not bring life to our children. It'll bring death. Or, or think of the idol of materialism. We live in a culture that uh, is drunk with affluenza, the idea that that life is found through purchasing more and more stuff. And, of course, if you give vent to that, if you, if you think that life is found in the abundance of your possessions, the more you possess, the more you'll find your possessions end up possessing you, and you'll find yourself less and less able to enjoy the possessions God has given, and you will be consumed and destroyed and progressively empty as the more you have of all the things that don't really matter, your soul will become an empty husk, sucked dry of life and of God. I've said this before, but he who dies with the most toys dies. Or think of success, when people idolize success, um, and it becomes the all-controlling idol. Now, God does not want His people to be lazy failures are unfruitful. But if we idolize success, whether it be success in the business world or success in the ministry world as a pastor, it, we, 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 get, we tend to get put out of balance, don't we? We tend to focus on success in one area, and, and we double down on success here. We idolize the workplace, making a name for ourselves, or we idolize the church, making a name for ourselves, and we tend to fail in other areas that are at least equally important, the home, our marriage, our relationship with our children, and so forth and so on, and we're sucked dry. Or think of um, social media and the technological idols of our age. We have the world at our fingertips. The iPhone is more, more power than the, the Apollo um, spacecraft that put um, man on the moon, and we have it in our hands, and we can, we're on uh, various social media platforms, platform, which can be very, very helpful, and they promise us community. But isn't it true, the more and more time we, we still spend um, flicking through endless social media posts or endless social media reels, we end up less and less able to enjoy true community and true fellowship. We were, Catherine and I were out recently at Starbucks. Oak Ridge is finally on the map. It's got a Starbucks, and we're sitting there, and there were a couple, a couple older than I, which surprised me. Um, not that they're older than I, but it surprised me. They were sitting beside us outside, and they, were, they spent the whole evening on their phone. Um, and less and less able to enjoy one another. Or you think of the idol of tolerance in our age, where you've got to tolerate everything, and people who worship that idol, they, they become so tolerant, they can tolerate everything except the truth. And it promises them life, it promises them love, and ends up robbing them of, of discernment and the capacity to know truth or the church that idolizes growth. So many churches, we talk about this in our new members class, idolize attracting people to the church. Um, that's a, a real problem in the ARP. We are in a shrinking denomination for many reasons, and so few of our churches were, are growing. And I was sitting beside a, 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 an older man, an elder in a church, 
and he was so thankful. He said, our church grew this year, he said. We added five members, only lost one. And um, that's an encouragement, of course, to see a church growing. But um, so many of our churches are shrinking, and when that's happening, you have the shrinks in your ministry, what do you do? Well, it can become so easy to make attracting men the focus, putting on a show, the lights and big band, as um, Spurgeon said, God has called men to shepherd the sheep. But there will come a time when the church will hire clowns to entertain the goats. Or the reason why the, the, the church has so little influence over the world is because the world has so much influence over the church. And we run the real danger of attracting men to church while all the while driving God from our sanctuaries. Because when you hire the marketeers to tell you how to uh, attract a crowd to your church, well, they will always tell you what they tell Starbucks and everybody else. When Starbucks loses the ability to persuade its clientele to exchange five bucks for a cup of black coffee, and what do you do? They say, identify your consumer and then give them what they want. And that's all very well, except when it comes to identifying the consumer of worship, um, marketeers only know how to look down, whereas the church identifying her consumer, the consumer of worship, shouldn't be looking down at men. They should be looking up to God. He is the consumer of our worship. And it's not what do men want, what does God want? That's the great question. Or the, the people who idolize political power, and they think the, 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 the secret to America, getting back to the greatness of the former years, is to get the right man in the White House. They double down on political influence, investing, giving to political parties, not to decry, of course, the importance of politics. But politics is always downstream from culture, which is always downstream from a, a nation's religion. And if, if, if a nation's religion, what happens when they live out the answers to life's ultimate questions, if that is polluted, the culture will be polluted. What is culture? Culture happens when you get a group of people living out their answers to life's ultimate questions. And then what's politics but the culture's attempt to, to elect leaders to give them what they want? But if their theology is bad and their culture is rotten, politics can never be the answer, Right? And so you see people getting more and more discouraged as they try to double down and elect the right man to the White House, and it becomes rank and angry and bitter, as we see in America today. We think about what happens when people idolize sex, when men look to pornography. What happens? It promises life, intimacy, and they become less and less able to enjoy the glories of the marriage bed, or even Forget pornography. If you idolize sex in your marriage, I often tell people in the premarital counseling, if you idolize sex before you get married, that's a poor strategy for not idolizing sex once you get married. And even if you avoid pornography, if you treat your wife as the purveyor simply of sexual pleasure, what's that going to do to your marriage? It'll leave your wife feeling like a a piece of flesh to be used for your pleasure, and it'll, it'll discourage her and drive her from you and destroy your capacity to enjoy the good gifts of God. And all of these things, remember, God is the giver of the gift, and we worship Him, and we use His gifts. But if you reverse the order, and you worship the gift, and you use God, everything goes to rack and to ruin. Idols promise life, but they always deliver death. They always 
deliver death. And you see that here as Ahab and Israel turn away from the true God, all they're left with is nothing. My people, Jeremiah said, have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fount of living waters, only to hew for themselves broken cisterns that can hold no water. How different Yahweh is from all false pretend gods. And then secondly, we see this evening how different one believer is from another. You compare Elijah and Obadiah. Elijah is rugged. He's fearless. He's out front. He's in public. He's, he's a man with, with the words. He's the prophet. He's God's spokesman. He stands out and apart from the madding crowd. Obadiah, by contrast, is a much more retiring figure. He is behind the scenes, um, and yet he's behind the scenes serving as Ahab's chief of staff. That's the idea here. He's over the household of Ahab. He's his chief of staff, right? He even calls Ahab Lord. And many commentators poke at Obadiah and say he's a, he's a compromiser, a collaborator, one who is scared to introduce Elijah to Ahab. But not so fast, right? Obadiah certainly is more diffident. He's less maybe confident than um, Elijah. But when you read the text, the text of 1 Kings 18 is undoubtedly pro-Obadiah. Verse 3, and Ahab called Obadiah, who was over the household. Now, Obadiah feared Yahweh greatly. And when Jezebel cut off the prophets of the Lord, Obadiah took a hundred prophets and hid them by fifties in a cave and fed them with bread and water. Notice what the text says, Obadiah feared the Lord. In other words, he was gripped by the reality of God Himself. And not just did he fear the Lord, but he feared the Lord greatly, very much, with all his might. It's the same word, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might, with all your veriness, is the Hebrew. And that's what it says here. He feared the Lord with all of his veriness. He's a man who's passionate for God, and that's the testimony of Scripture. He's the kind of man Calvin described when he said, even if there was no hell such a man would still shudder at the thought of offending God alone. And Calvin says we ought to note this fact even more diligently. All men have a vague general veneration of God, but very few really reverence Him. And Obadiah was a man who reverenced the Lord. Do you fear the Lord mightily? Does, does, the, does the idea of God, the person of God, rest heavily upon your soul? It rested heavily on Obadiah's soul. And like Daniel and many others, he served in the midst of an ungodly administration, but he served the Lord there. And we see in the next verse, when Ahab and Jezebel were out killing the prophets of the Lord, Obadiah was hiding them. Do you have any idea what Jezebel would have done to Obadiah if she discovered him hiding a hundred of the Lord's prophets in a cave? She would have skinned him alive. Death would have been the least of his worries. Like the, the man um, who, who wrote the tyrannicide brief for Charles I's execution, he knew what would happen when Charles II came into power. He would be disemboweled, 
through his rectum. And the death took about 10 minutes, they said, but an awful lot can happen in those 10 minutes. Like a friend of mine, he told me once he was getting a prostate biopsy, and the surgeon said, if you can survive the next 60 seconds, you'll be through the worst of it. He thought, that's not so bad. And he said, then he said to me afterwards, an awful lot can happen in 60 seconds. Ralph Davis says, clearly Obadiah is afraid of Ahab, that Ahab would execute him should he herald Elijah's return. He alludes to that fate three times, verse 9, 12, and 14. Imagine that, Davis says, a servant of the Lord who prefers not to die. Is that so strange, really? I mean, how does being skinned alive sound to you? It's not top of my to-do list for Monday morning. We're reminded that God is served by all kinds of people who serve Him in all kinds of different places. No two servants of God are alike. The lesson here is be faithful where God put you, and be faithful as the man or woman God has made you to be. Again, Davis is helpful. We may draw a legitimate application based on this discussion. Obadiah is obviously very different from Elijah. Elijah's ministry is more public and confrontational. Obadiah works quietly in behind-the-scenes fashion and is yet faithful in the sphere where God placed him. The Bible never tells us that there's only one kind of faithful servant. It never demands that you or I be an Elijah clone. Models are helpful, but slavish imitation of them is foolish. He goes on, in the war between the states of of the army of Cumberland, surprised the Confederate defenders and their own officers by scrambling up Missionary Ridge in Chattanooga and overrunning the enemy's strong position. When Major General Phil Sheridan arrived at the top, he leaped on one of the just-captured Confederate cannons and twirled his cap and rolled the gun like a horse. One of Sheridan's brigadier generals, Charles Harker, noted Sheridan's antics and decided he could horse around too. Harker also leaped astride another cannon and felt instant regret. Apparently, his cannon had been fired more frequently and more recently than Sheridan's, and it burned Harker's backside so badly he couldn't sit in the saddle of his horse for two weeks. Copying one servant can be a dangerous thing to do. How helpful then, David says, that Elijah is not Yahweh's only faithful servant. Faithfulness is not so dull that it comes only in one flavor. Moreover, your own pride requires the correction this narrative can give. You are not called to great works, but to good works, not to flamboyant ministry, but to faithful ministry, not to be a dashing servant, but only a devoted one. And I see this all the time in ministry. You'll see a man grow up under a, uh, under a pulpit, and when he comes into his own ministry, he attempts to copy the preacher he grew up under. Pastor Albert N. Martin was one of the most powerful preachers of the last century. And um, his sermons were amazing. He had, this, he had a deaf mother, and he learned growing up that he needed to speak with great clarity and accuracy, and he spoke slowly and with great volume. And it was his own unique style. And as he preached, it was like a, a Boeing 747 or a Dreamliner taking off from the runway. I sort of trundled along and gathered speed and then soared into the air at the end of the runway. But so many of the men who grew up under his ministry tried to copy him, and it was a monstrous caricature 
and the plane never seemed to get off the runway in the end. Be yourself and serve God where God put you, being faithful and devoted to Him. How different Yahweh is from false gods, how different one believer is from another. In the third place this evening, I want you to see how different the wicked are from the righteous. Compare Ahab with Obadiah. Ahab's chief concern is to protect the horses and the animals. Horses were a sign of military might, and they promised security. A.W. Pink says, there's not a single syllable here about God, not a word about the awful sins which had called down God's displeasure upon the land. Fountains, brooks, and grass were all that occupied Ahab's thoughts. Relief from the divine affliction was all he cared about. He cared about the consequences of God's judgment, but not the cause. He had no concern about repentance. He had just concern with trying to find a way to survive amidst the judgment. A man is completely insensitive to the reality of sin. Does the reality of sin weigh heavily on you? And I'm reminded when I was a few years ago in the PCA, my former denomination, but it had been the fastest growing Protestant denomination in America. And I think it was about 2012, the powers that be in Atlanta noticed that the numbers had plateaued and were even declining just a bit. And their first thought was, what can we do differently? They never once thought, maybe the sign of our lack of growth is a sign that we have displeased and grieved the Spirit of God. It never, seemed to, it, it never even seemed to trickle into their mind that that could be a possibility. Are you sensitive with where your soul's at with God? Are you near to Him or far? Are you closer this year than you were last year? Or has your soul been drifting, slip, sliding away? Nahab was a man who had no sensitivity to sin because he had lost a sensitivity to the Holy Spirit. Phil Riken speaks about the double sin, sins of omission, sins of commission. Ahab had abandoned the commandments of the Lord, Ahab, sorry, Elijah says in verse 18. He's abandoned the Lord, abandoned the commandments of the Lord, and followed the Baals. Abandoning the commandments of the Lord, those were his sins of omission. Ahab had not been doing what he ought to have been doing, but he also followed the Baals. His worship was false, a transgression, a sin of commission. He was doing the things he ought not to have done, and this revealed his sin. He was in bad spiritual state. Are you sensitive about your sins of omission, your sins of commission? Do you pray with any regularity, O Lord, I have done the things I ought not to have done, and I have left undone the things I ought to have done, and there is no health in me, as Cramner's liturgy says. Compare Ahab then with Obadiah. His chief concern was not to protect the horses, but to protect the preachers, keeping a hundred of them alive in caves during the… the erstwhile slaughter by um, Jezebel. He's a man who grasped the truth of Psalm 20. Now I know that the Lord saved his anointed. He will answer him from his holy heaven with the saving strength of his right hand. Some boast in chariots and some in horses, but we will boast in the name of the Lord our God. 
or Psalm 33, the Lord looks down from heaven. He sees all the sons of men from his dwelling place. He looks out on all the inhabitants of the earth. He who fashions the hearts of them all, he understands all their works. The king is not saved by a mighty army. A warrior is not delivered by great strength. A horse is a false hope for victory, nor does it deliver anyone by its great strength. Behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him, on those who hope for his loving kindness to deliver their soul from death and to keep them alive in famine. Our soul waits for the Lord. He is our help and our shield. And I can forget that. If I can forget that, I dare say you can also. When a minister forgets his need for God and forgets to wait for the Lord, what he tends to do is he tends to work on his own behind the scenes marshalling people on his side, trying to work and gain um, influence in the denomination, in his own congregation, his own session, which is a false and vain hope when the answer to any man of God in the pulpit, any man of God in the pew, is not to work his own agenda, but to wait for God and to look for God to speak and for God to answer and for God to move. And if I can forget that all day, every day, and twice on Sundays, I dare say you might also. Are you waiting for God this evening? Are you working the angles behind the scenes? There's also a sign as we see Jezebel killing the prophets left, right, and center. As I heard one preacher say, the biggest problem with preachers today is that nobody wants to kill them anymore. What we need more than anything else are men who fear God more than they fear men, and men who love truth more than they love their own lives. And pray for me, pray for Kai, pray for your elders, pray for our denomination, that we'll be filled, that our pulpits will be filled with such men. And I'm concerned that in far too many pulpits, they're not. One of the popes said about Calvin, that proud heretic, riches and fame mean nothing to him. How different Yahweh is from false gods, how different one believer is from another, and how different the wicked are from the righteous. And lastly, how different God's ways are with some men than with others. Obadiah did the right thing. He took a hundred prophets, and he hid them in caves, probably near Mount Carmel, where there were hundreds of caverns. And again, Riken says this, there's a lesson in this action about the variety of the providence of God. There were one hundred and one prophets in Israel that God protected but he did not save them all the same way. God used miraculous means to save Elijah. Remember the widow of Zarephath, for example. But he used ordinary means to save the hundred prophets. On occasion, God used ravens to bring meat and bread to Elijah. Such provision was extraordinary. It was miraculous. But when the rest of the prophets went hungry, God used his servant Obadiah to supply them with food and water. 
Although God is capable of providing for our need with a miraculous providence, His usual procedure is to provide through ordinary means. I might add also the fact that God saved a hundred prophets but didn't save the hundreds more that Jezebel's sword found and butchered is also instructive, isn't it? God spared Elijah. He spared these hundred, but there were many, many men, faithful men, who were found out in their beds, found out in their pulpits, and were put to death by the sword. And where was the God of Elijah then? Where was the God who protected Elijah and the God of the hundred prophets Obadiah saved on January the 8th, 1955, when a war party of Auka Indians approached Jim Elliot, Pete Fleming, Ed McCulley, Nate Saint, and Roger Udurian, and speared them all to death. Where was the God of Elijah then? I tell you, he was right there. Absolutely sovereign, absolutely good, and absolutely faithful. His ways are different. It's vintage Yahweh. Phil Reichen again says, there's a much-needed lesson for any church that is clamoring for signs and wonders. The late John Wimber, the founder of the Vineyard Churches, exemplified this thirst for the miraculous. When Wimber first became a believer, he started to read about the miracles in Scripture and could not figure out why he did not see much more of them happening in his local church. He went to his pastor and said, when are you going to do all the stuff? His pastor said, what stuff? Wimber said, you know, the stuff like walking on water, healing the sick, and raising the dead. Reichen says, God can do the stuff, and sometimes He does. He did the stuff for Elijah. He even raised the dead for him. It is easy to imagine how this would be marketed in the contemporary church. Elijah's handlers would sell bookmarks printed with the prayer of Zarephath and publish copies of Cherith Cookbook with 101 ways to cook bread and meat. Elijah would become a faith healer, raising the dead on cable TV. After his show, they would run infomercials for the Elijah diet. Understand, whoever, Riken says, that God did not do the stuff for the other hundred prophets, not the miraculous stuff anyway. God provided for his other servants in a mundane and unspectacular way. Yet this provision was equally providential. The prophets in the cave had as much reason to praise God when they saw Obadiah coming as Elijah did when he saw the ravens. One can almost imagine a prophet hiding in Obadiah's cave, listening to some of Elijah's sermons, deciding that true believers are fed only by ravens, and then going off to find his own brook. Such a prophet would not would have gone hungry, because he would have been stepping outside God's ordinary providence. Do not yearn for the extraordinary provision of God, but trust in His ordinary providence. Do not expect a miracle. If 1 Kings 18 is any indication, the chances are at least 100 to 1 that God will provide for us in a much more ordinary way. This is an encouragement whenever we wait for God's provision. God will provide. All the legwork we do during a job search will finally pay off. A friend from church will tell us about the apartment we've been looking for. A health problem will be solved by going to conventional doctors. Many times the Lord will use the faithfulness of believers like Obadiah to provide just what we need. Which is a reminder to us as parents, isn't it? God has 
decreed means by which He will bring our children to salvation, coming to the ordinary means of grace, a sermon, sometimes a sermon that might seem too long, a piece of a little drop of water in a child's head, a little piece of, of bread, and a little cup of wine. It's so unspectacular. I was sitting at Synod with those kind of awful gluten-free wafers, and it's so much less palatable than a piece of bread, but it's a sign of the blood of Jesus Christ and His body poured out in our room and in our stead. And it's through those means that God turns sinners into saints, the means of reading the Bible and praying with your children are the means God has ordained to raise them in the fear and admonition of the Lord. Fathers taking care not to provoke their children's anger. It always amazes me when Paul is writing to the church in Colossae. He's got like 140 characters, a tweet for parents, for all times, all places, all cultures. And what's he say? Do not provoke your children to anger. That's incredible. Like if that was, if, if, if I had one chance to preach a sermon on parenting, and that's all I said, you'd be remarkably unimpressed. But it's what God said to the, the fathers in Colossae. Obviously, it's a clear and present danger to the hearts and souls of our children. God has decreed ordinary means to bring ourselves to children from unbelief to faith, from spiritual death to spiritual life. And if we neglect those means, well, there'll be predictable consequences. God will give us just what we need, and sometimes we will need extraordinary deliverance. And sometimes we will need ordinary providence. And sometimes when our work on earth is done, as was the case with Jim Elliot and his four friends, and for Harry Reader two weeks ago on the highway, we just need to die and for God to bring us safely all the way home. And that's okay. How vastly different are God's ways. In the extraordinary and in the ordinary, He supplies all of our needs according to His riches in glory by Christ Jesus. And God tells us these things in stories in the Bible. So you get to um, remember, you sometimes you'll see a map on a board, and they'll cover it in acetate paper, see-through paper, and they'll write on the map with like… Um, um, markers, and you get to see the lines and where the maybe a military invasion, where it's going to go and so forth. They're, they're writing on top of the acetate. And God does that. He takes the lives of ordinary people like Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, Elijah, and Obadiah. Interestingly, Obadiah is called Obadiah, the servant of the Lord. What's that tell you about his parents as they named him? What was important to them? What mattered to them? It's interesting that. But God superimposes His his workings over their lives, at times extraordinary, but more often than not just plain ordinary providence, giving our daily bread, how silently, how silently the wondrous gift is given, and yet in both extraordinary and ordinary providence, the hand of God is plain to see. And we see that in Elijah's life to teach us to recognize the hand of God in our lives 
and to look back over our life. As Flavel says, the providence of God is like Hebrew, it's best read backwards and say, thus far the Lord has helped us. What an amazing God. And He's all over Scripture, and He's all over your life, Christian. His fingerprints are there if only you will see. But I tell you this, if you're not in the Word of God, young men, young ladies, older men, older ladies, don't be surprised if you see nothing of God in your life. But He's there for those with eyes to see and ears to hear, and open the book of God, and to learn to recognize His wondrous, glorious ways with the sons and daughters of Adam. What a wonderful God we have. I'm looking forward next week to come back again and see um, His work showing His glory in such an extraordinary way on Mount Carmel, showing who the real God is as He answers His prophet in fire from heaven. Let's pray together. O Lord, our God and our Father, we need Your help. This world seems so substantial, and so often Your work seems so flimsy. We don't have eyes to see it. We're so caught up with our own desires, our own designs, our own dreams, our own plans, that we don't have eyes to see You working quietly behind the scenes. We pray, O Lord God, for us young and old in this congregation. Give us eyes to see. Give us hearts to want to see the hand of God in our lives. And reveal yourself, O God, to our children. Let your majesty appear before them, O Lord, our God, and establish the work of their hands. Yes, O Lord God, we pray, establish the work of our hands, that whether they be called to great public works like Elijah or quiet behind-the-scenes work like Obadiah, working in a godless generation and a godless administration, give them faithfulness, not flamboyance, and devotion, O Lord, to the Lord in all that they do. And we offer these prayers, O Lord, that the words of our mouth and the meditation of our heart will be acceptable in your sight, our rock and our redeemer. In Christ, amen.